I'm Ed Adams, and you're listening to the AFCA Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back as we kick off Season 3 of the AFCA Podcast. And I am honored to start the season with the legend himself, documentary filmmaker Sam Pollard. So let's catch up after the break. The AFCA Podcast is sponsored by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment. Twenty twenty was a year for the books, folks. Since our last episode, we've endured a pandemic. We took to the streets to take a stand against systemic racism that flows throughout our institutions and industries. And we ended the year with a lesson in democracy that taught us that every voice and vote counts to make this a more perfect union. Now, during that time, AFCA was busy too. Throughout the year, Gil Robertson and the AFCA team rolled up their sleeves and kicked off a slew of new projects. The AFCA Roundtable provided a platform for our members to hold virtual press junkets with the actors, directors, and producers in film and television. We had a couple of virtual events like the 2020 AFCA TV Honors, the AFCA Spotlights, AFCA Conversations, and the AFCA Table Reads. Now, there's a lot more to talk about when it comes to what AFCA's been doing in 2020. But let's get back to season three of the podcast. When it comes to capturing the black experience in film, only one name comes to mind, and that's Sam Pollard. Mr. Pollard has been telling our stories for over 30 years. His first project, Eyes on the Prize 2, America at the Racial Crossroads, won him an Emmy. And since then, he's been producing, directing, and editing so many crucial stories, including the Peabody Award-winning I'll Make Me a World, stories of the African-American artists and community, and Spike Lee's If God Willing and the Creek Don't Lies for HBO. Now, Sam Pollard's resume is extensive, with over 100 credits as a producer, director, and editor. His latest project is the film MLK FBI, which takes a deep dive into the contemptuous relationship between Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover and his efforts to stop the civil rights movement. The FBI was most alarmed about King because of his success. He realized how sick this country was. We were trying to reveal the truth about segregation. J. Edgar Hoover is famous for saying that he feared the rise of a black messiah. The FBI says it's clear Martin Luther King Jr. is the most dangerous Negro in America, and we have to use every resource at our disposal to destroy him. Edgar Hoover was the head of the FBI for 48 years. The FBI's focus was collecting salacious sexual material of King with various girlfriends. Hoover had made the speech that Martin Luther King was the world's most notorious liar. Now what am I going to do about Martin Luther King? Looks to me like he's too far north. This was a way that they could bring down a very influential black civil rights leader and contain the movement. The FBI mailed the tape of Dr. King with other women to him and to Coretta with an advice that he should go kill himself. 
That was a clip from Sam Pollard's MLK FBI. Recently, I had a chance to speak to Mr. Pollard via Zoom about his film and his work process and his legacy. Well, thank you for being a part of the AFCA podcast. My pleasure, man. My pleasure. Um, so one of the first things you notice right off the bat in this film is that there's a lack of talking heads um, in this documentary. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, you hear the analysis in a narration, but you don't see the people. And I was just kind of curious, why did you decide to tell the story this way? Well, you know, and I had seen a documentary back in 2011 called Black Power Mixtape, mm-hmm. made by this Swedish documentary filmmaker. And one of the things that was really engaging about that documentary was the fact that you saw all this phenomenal archival footage from the 70s, and everybody who commented was off camera. Uh, Angela Davis, Harry Belafonte, and others, you never saw them, you just heard them talking. And that stayed with me. I thought, wow, that's a very intriguing way to do a film. So when we were thinking about this film after we had read David Garrow's book about Dr. King and Hoover and the FBI, one of the first things I said to the producer, Benedine, is that, you know, strategically, aesthetically, I want to do this film without any talking heads. You know, okay. Let's try to do everybody off camera. And that was our strategy right from the beginning. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So I hadn't, I hadn't, I have to admit, I hadn't read the book. Um but I'd read a couple of reviews about it. And one of the things I thought was interesting was a, a reader's uh, analysis of the book. And he said, uh, he was a hero with the feet of clay. And I, I just kind of wanted you to kind of talk to me because there is something that you do see is this, this, this very humane, flawed, somewhat flawed character that kind of comes across on screen. I just wanted to hear from you, how did you feel about constructing who you wanted King to be, and also who you wanted J. Edgar Hoover to be when you were putting this film together? Well, first of all, I just want to look at King as a man who had a feet of clay. I mean, to me, (laughs) one of the things that I have found both engaging, invigorating, and important to do as a filmmaker in the last five, six years was to create stories of people who I grew up with and admired tremendously, but also now taking an opportunity to look at them 180, you know, looking at them all from all perspectives. So in tackling Dr. King, who, you know, and in the 60s, I was saying to someone in my household, we had three pictures on our wall. Martin Luther King, Sharon Fitzgerald Kennedy, and Jesus Christ. Those are the pictures in Black communities, you know, in the wall. So King was someone that we all respected and revered. And I didn't think anything else that King was the man who had done given the phenomenal I have a dream speech. He was the man who was, you know, we saw him as, you know, this as Moses leading us to the promised land, taking us out of the dark, the dark tunnel of segregation and Jim Crowism. So now here I am 40 something years later, and now I'm sort of see the world in much more layered perspective. So I felt that this was an opportunity to really dig into King and see him as obviously a great man who had a great contribution to American history and to world history. But to see him, but to see him as a human being who had, you know, who had his own foibles, and and the understanding that he had a lot on his plate. You know, he was dealing with a lot of things. He was dealing with, you know, being the head of SCLC, going to cities like Birmingham and Albany and Selma, <clears throat> winning the Nobel Peace Prize. The burden of that, going to do with that, knowing full well he was also being 
investigated and wiretapped in his hotel rooms, bugged by the FBI and Hoover. And then by 67, deciding, which was a monumental step, man, to say to the world, you know, I'm not just about civil rights. I'm also about saying that as we as a country should rethink us ourselves about being in Vietnam, knowing full well what that would mean in terms of his relationship with, relationship with the Johnson administration. So, you know, I just think you want to dig into these people and dig into them as human beings. Now, for J. Edgar Hoover, we wanted to show this man who was for 40 years, over 40 years, the executive director of the FBI, who when I, in, in, when I was 16, 14, 15 years old, man, the FBI was heroes to me, man. I used to watch a show on ABC every Sunday night called The FBI, you know, Efren Zimbalist Jr., you know, so Hoover was a hero. But here we are now looking at him, digging in the man whose obsession with Dr. King is both racial and political. Political from the perspective that he's seen a man lead a group of people to basically upend Hoover's notion of what American democracy should be. And what was American democracy to most white people in the 30s and the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s? We were here, black people, but where were we? We were on the fringes, you know? If you saw us in popular culture, we were Butterfly McQueen and Mildred Pierce. We were Step and Fetch it in the Will Rogers movie. We were Willie Best with Bob Hope, you know? We were, you know, Beulah. We were like in the shadows, you know? We didn't have a major presence in, in this mainstream. We couldn't walk into a restaurant in the South. We couldn't sit, we had to sit in the back of the bus, you know? We were marginalized. But for most white people, <laughs> they didn't see us, you know? They didn't see us. All of a sudden now, here's a black man with his associate saying, we want equal parity. And you know, white people want to say, what? what, what what's, what's the problem? Aren't you happy? You know, you know there was this whole idea that what, what, what racial problems are there in America? <laughs> you know, so, so that's one thing that probably upset Hoover. The other thing too, as a white man in America, again, he saw black people and black men in a certain way. All of a sudden, a black man is challenging the white, the notion of white America. How dare he? You know, how dare he? This does, this does not make sense. He must be in league with the communists. You know, he must be in league with the communists trying to turn our country into a socialist, you know, country. You know, and if he wasn't in league with the communists, we learned through our wiretapping and our bugging that this man is not an upright, good standing Christian minister. He smokes, he drinks. He has affairs with other women. We need to take him down by any, as to use Malcolm's phrase, by any means necessary. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, you know, since you mentioned uh, the TV shows, I noticed in the film you have a couple of clips, uh, some from the TV show, but also from the FBI story. Um, and I was just kind of thinking, you know, because I forgot about those movies and that TV show. I remember watching it a little bit in reruns. And it kind of made me start thinking about, the FBI as as part of our cultural narrative, right? Like how we see the FBI more so than even the police. And I was just wondering, as you were looking at all those old episodes, trying to find the clips and looking at movies that kind of expose, that talked about the FBI being the heroes of America, so to speak, um, what were some of the things that kind of came to mind when you decided what you were going to pick? Well, it was the idea that America by after the World War II and in the, in the beginning of the Cold War, saw the FBI 
as the premier organization to curtail communism at every step of the way. You know, so there, a series of movies were made in the late 40s and early 50s where the myth, the mythology of the FBI was really ratcheted up. You know, they would have agents in there basically to, to, to you know, destroy communism. That's why we use clips from the film Walking Crooked Mile. That's why we use film, films from that film. I was a communist for the FBI. You know, that's why I use clips from that John Wayne film, Big Jim McClain. You know, mm-hmm. here were these guys fighting these horrible agents, you know, of the Soviet Union, you know, trying to destroy America. And so that's why we felt it was important to show these clips to sort of show the fact that this mythology of the FBI, and you see those clips of Hoover, you know, in front of the House of American Activities Committee, basically talking about how he's going to rid the country of communism. You know, it's scary when you think about it, it's scary. But it was shaping, again, this country shapes mythology like many countries do, that people can buy into, you know. And if you do it, if you do it well enough, as we've seen in the, four, in the last four years, man, mm-hmm. people will eat it up. They will buy into it. I mean, I was watching this, this TV show last night, The Circus and Showtime, and one of the reporters is down in Texas talking to some of these Southern people down there. And they're basically saying it wasn't, it wasn't Trump supporters, MAGA supporters who were in the front of that in, in, you know, invasion of the Capitol. It was Antifa, you know, members of Antifa. You know, I mean, but, but Trump's charisma and his way of selling himself and selling this notion that this election was fraudulent has really set hold. And, that's, and America has done that for many years, creating mm-hmm. these mythologies that America can completely embrace. You know, it's interesting. I was actually just about to ask you a question about something very similar, which is, uh, like Churchill said, you know, those who fail to learn from history is just doomed to repeat it. And I feel that as a as a filmmaker, as a documentary filmmaker, you 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 capture our history on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Um, You and, and your peers. I'm curious do you think we actually, as Americans, learn from our history? I mean, we have this right in front of us. I mean, when we talk about documentary filmmaking, these are truths. They're put right before you. And you suppose the question is there for people to kind of take that information. And yet, here we are again. You know, and I was just kind of curious, when you are creating film and you look at where we are right now, are you optimistic about the American story? Well, you know, I'm 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 70 years old, and and uh, in the mid 60s, as I was saying to you, Dr. King was a big presence in my household. But back then, I believed completely in the American melting pot. You know that this wouldn't matter. You know, if I got a good education and I could speak correctly, and I got a good job, they wouldn't see me as back then, as you know, a Negro. I was just an American. Now, you know, and I know that's a big falsehood, you know, because they always see this. So I've come to understand the level of complexity and the level of of hypocrisy in America. But I still believe, you know, that people, if they want to change, they got to come to a reckoning about who this country is and what the history of this country. And I hope that these films will do that. So do I have a certain level of optimism? You know, sure, because if I didn't, I would have to get up, get my, get a new passport and leave this country, you know, 
because as you know, most of us as African-Americans, we love being American. We love America, but we understand the hypocrisy of America. We understand the racism of America. We understand the economic disparity in America, you know? And we hope, I always hope that these films will reach people who don't normally think like me, but can watch this film and say, let me think, let me think. The problem with most people in America is that they don't learn to think, they don't learn to challenge anything that's put in front of them. You know, they just buy it and, and, and just sort of suck it up. I mean, you gotta be able to challenge and question everything in, in the world. You just can't accept it as a status quo, you know? So if someone tells me this is like, you know, the election was fraudulent, this was this and that, I don't say, okay, let me, let me, let me understand the facts. Let me see the facts, you know? And I, I still have that level of, Hope, for hope that, and this is sad to say, you know, because we've heard this phrase a long time. We've heard this phrase many times, that somewhere we will make things, things change. But as, as we've heard Dr. King say, we have a long way to go. I thought in the 60s and the 70s when I heard that phrase, well, we, maybe we'll make a big turn, but we still have a long way to go, man. Because when people, when people don't understand about that attack on the Capitol two weeks ago on January 6th, is that it's not an aberration in America. It's part of the DNA of America. We as black people know that firsthand when, when white people would say, you know, why are these black communities successful? Why are they doing this? Oh, we heard that a black man attacked a white woman. That was just the match that would let the flame for them to go into communities. Like you saw those people go into the Capitol and destroy. Mm -hmm. and destroy because you know i was watching this film the other night from old 1942 and with alan ladd and he's dealing with this young woman played by vanita granville and he's asking her you shouldn't be hanging he's telling her you shouldn't be hanging out with these low lights you know what she says to him adam what she says i can do anything i want because i'm free white and 21. you remember how white people would think it's in their DNA at this point. Wow. That's exactly right. <laughs> I'm free, white, and 21. So basically she's saying, I can do what the fuck I want, which is oh, what those wow. people, when those people attack the white, the capital, that's what they think. Uh, totally. I mean, to, to say that, uh, and not to get too political on the podcast, but you're right. I mean, as we're watching it, black people are not surprised. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Because yeah. we've been doing this for years, man. I mean, we're shocked, but not surprised. Not surprised. Yeah, because, yeah. Because, because as soon as you say something like, people say, what? Don't you know who I am? <laughs> Do you see this? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that you said that because um, something kind of came up in the <laughs> film that I wasn't expecting. And it was this level of naivete that King had about the FBI and Hoover's tenacity to get something on him, how far he went to wiretap him, how far he went in his surveillance. And um, even when he was advised, he still didn't believe it. Um, and I was curious when you were talking to, 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 to David as you were putting this film together, did that surprise you? And then even more so, I have to admit, it kind of blew my mind about Ernest Withers, right? Um, I, that just kind of blew my mind, but I just wanted to know um, quickly, could you tell me one, um, 
how did you feel or, or did, were you surprised about that naivete that King had? And then two, when you found out about the informants? First of all, I, I, even though when Clarence Jones says that King didn't believe that they were being wiretapped, I personally think that deep down, Dr. King knew. He just didn't want to come to grips with it. He had to know. He, he was too intelligent a man not to know that the FBI wouldn't go that far. I just don't believe, he, he, I think he was acting, quite honestly. I think he believed it. He deep down knew that they were. How could he not know? You know, he's, he's Martin Luther King. You know, I, I, I think that naivete was a front. <laughs> quite Interesting. Honestly. Okay, yeah, Young seemed to be pretty like clear about it. Like, yeah, well, we knew. <laughs> yeah, they knew. I mean, if Andy Young knew back then, Dr. King knew. Okay. Now, the informant thing, it's interesting that they knew that they had informants. King and, and his associates knew they were informants in the F, from the FBI. But obviously, I mean, what were they saying in these, you know, in these meetings that was going to like destroy democracy? They weren't. They were basically talking about doing what? Non-active, non-violent intervention into these places, you know, going to get arrested, sitting, doing sit-ins. They weren't going to do anything where they were going to blow up a building. So they, that's why they weren't concerned about the act of the informants. I was, you know, I knew about, I had known about Ernest Withers before, and I had learned about that a few years back. So I was, I always was like, well, obviously he needed a job. Because obviously, I don't believe he think he thought he was doing anything wrong. You know, the, there was another man, as we mentioned in the film, who worked in the office of the SCLC. Mm -hmm. And he's still alive today. You know, and he lives in Atlanta. And my producer thought we should do what I call one of those Mike Wallace moments from 60 Minutes. Remember those white Mike Wallace moments? Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, there's a lot of things I'll do for a film, but I'm not sure I want to have a camera crew behind me and go up and knock on his door and say, we, we know that you were an informant for the FBI and you worked in the SCLC office. Do you want to comment? I just, to me, I, I can't do that. Well, he lives in Atlanta, and I bet you he's seen this film. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, uh, I know we're getting close to time, but I, I've been asking this question for most people on the podcast, and I would love to your, your take on it. But uh, so 2020 um, kind of taught us a lot. One about our culture, what we already talked about, but also we, this cultural shift with COVID. Um, and I was just kind of curious, um, during this time, what did you learn about yourself that you didn't know before? Oh, I'm not sure I learned much because I've, I've been around so long, man. I've had a lot of ups and downs like everybody. You know, I've made some, some interesting strides. I've made some mistakes in life. I don't know if I learned anything. I mean, <laughs> what, what I always find about every, every film I tackle is I try to sort of be like a archaeologist, just digging into the storylines and the people and finding out the things that sometimes you feel like, wow, why are you saying that about that person? You have to say that? And I think you do. You know, again, it's my idea, my philosophy that I want to show a human being. I, you know, I don't want to show deities. You know, it's like I'm finishing up a film about the jazz composer, activist drummer Max Roach and as we were digging into interviewing people and learning about Max we found out there was some 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 negative stuff about Max now I could say to myself well I don't want to put that in about Max because he's one of my idols 
And I spent a lot of time with Max in the 90s. But I said to the, my co-director, I said, man, we, you know, we can't shy away from that. And sure enough, we recently, one of his sons said to us, do you really have to keep some of that stuff in about our dad? Well, my take is sure, that shows who he was. I mean, if I was doing a film about my dad, I'm not gonna show everything that I loved about him. I wanna show some of the shady stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's just who I am, man. You know, I don't yeah. think anybody walks on water. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, I think it's kind of fascinating. Um, one more thing uh, before we go. What is your, what is the takeaway that you want the audience to um, come away with this film understanding? The takeaway is I want you to see this is a slice of American history that is ever present. That it resonates with our history today. We're living in some of the most phenomenal complicated, tortured part of our country, but there's antecedents that people should want to really understand and look at. And then some of the things you hear in the MLK FBI, the dog whistles about communism, the dog whistles about, do you feel your peaceful protests are causing riots in the cities? You want to still hear, you're still hearing that stuff in America today, man. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, I do find you to be one of the quintessential gatekeepers of our history. So I just want to say thank you for doing what you do. Thank you, man. Really appreciate it. I enjoy talking to you. That was the amazing Sam Pollard talking about his latest project, MLK FBI, which is currently available on demand on your favorite streaming services. I also recommend you catch another of his latest projects, Black Art in the Absence of Light, which premieres on HBO in February. And that's our show. Thanks again to Mr. Pollard taking part in this interview. Now, I mentioned a lot of projects AFCA has been doing during the podcast hiatus, and I recommend you check them out. You can find all these series, specials, and events by visiting the AFCA channel on YouTube. And be sure to like and subscribe while you're there. So until next time, keep your head up. <laughs>